Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. Uh, this is Pete. And as always, I am joined by uh, Connor. And today we have a special treat for you. We're going to be going through a Netflix anthology called Love, Death, and Robots. But before we do, uh, Connor had quite a day. Uh, Connor, do you want to talk a little bit about what happened? Well, yes. Uh, I want to say I'm actually in a great mood right now um, because... Despite being extremely tired, I had jury duty today, which I had been dreading for a while, having never had it before. And I am legally bound not to talk in too much detail about the case. I did not get picked for a jury. Um, Jury duty in New York is however cinematic a scene you're imagining from like Law and Order or whatever. It's that, but more so. I'm happy to report. It's 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 a trip. Uh, but there was one anecdote that I wanted to share with you guys uh, that gives some insight into how, why I was not picked for the jury. At one point, the very charismatic prosecutor, when I was one of the people in the jury box, because here they do a pool of like 60 people to get down to 12, which means they can dismiss people very easily and just whittle down exactly what they want. The very charismatic prosecutor, you know, I had raised some objections to some things she said. And she's asked me directly, like, you know, do you <laughs> do you feel that you could apply the law impartially in this case nonetheless, in so many words? And I did a very Connor thing, which is I started to give the answer because because my dad's, you know, my dad's an attorney and I, I was raised uh, sort of with a legalistic mindset about certain things. So I started to say something along the lines of I was raised to, you know, do my best to think through the law conceptually, but in this case, blah, blah, blah. And I started saying that. And the judge cut me off and said, that's just a simple yes or no answer. So I threw up my hands and I said, all right, no, I'm not going to apply the law impartially in this case based on the details of the case. And as I said that, the judge, I swear I'm not making this up, the judge muttered under her breath, writers. (laughs) Which I... I'm going to have to start doing that to you, actually. It's like, I'm going to need a yes or a no answer here, Connor. Right. Well, I, I, when I was, yeah, that's a great point because it's like, I'm the guy who monologues way too much on the show, right? So <laughs> that was the judge was like jumping in there, cutting me off, you know, from the, the second mic being like, hey, shut up. Although poetically, her mic was actually broken today. The judge's mic was not operational. So I don't know if that's what kind of omen that is. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was. It, it was a fun. It was an interesting day. Jury duty. If you've ever, I don't know if you guys have had it, but lots to lots to learn there. But this this show is about something much different, which are these Netflix shorts. Yes, uh, Love, Death, and Robots, which are based on. I guess are these all based on um, sort of relatively well known sci fi short stories, Pete? All but two of them. Uh, 
one, the witness and blind spot, they were both teleplays that were set up specifically for this. The rest of them are well-known short stories, and at least most of these are heavy-duty writers. Like, a lot of names pop out at me. What are some of the big names? I know Scalzi did one, but... Yep. And, you know, as I go through, it looks like Scalzi did at least two. Um, Peter Hamilton did one, and Peter Hamilton is... He's the only writer of note to consistently and successfully combine space opera with Jesus. Um, Alastair Reynolds is another uh, space opera writer. Really popular one right now. Um, I really like him, but like he, it takes about 100 pages for him to get going. And then uh, Marco Clues, who I would say, with the exception of, of Scalzi, is sort of the best of the newcomer sci-fi military science fiction people. Uh, there's also Ken Liu here. He did Good Hunting, but I uh, like I haven't read enough by Ken Liu. I know he's of significance, but I'm not qualified to talk about him except to say people say he's great. So yeah, I mean, there's quite a list here. So are most of these writers still alive? Yes. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, all of them are still alive. Ah, so these are contemporary. Okay, interesting. Do you... Do you know about the process of how they acquired these stories? Do you know like how much people are getting paid or any of that stuff? No, but I I do know that uh, there used to be a boom in science fiction short stories. In fact, that's where a lot of authors made their money. But the economics of it has changed. So I it's it's hard for me to imagine that this wasn't a very welcome offer from Netflix. I'm sure it was, and I, you know, as someone who's interested in the nitty-gritty of the publishing industry for obvious reasons, I'd be very curious to know how much individual writers got paid. There's probably no way to find out. I'll bet someone like Scalzi got paid handsomely. Probably some of these went for a lot less than he was getting. Um, that's just the nature of the beast. But, yep. yeah, I mean, honestly, I feel like for, for even pretty well-established writers, if you have someone showing up and being like, we want the screen rights to your short story and we'll give you, like, low four figures for it, a lot of them would probably jump at that. I hope they got more. Oh, sure. That probably was a lot of a lot of what was going on. And hey, you know what? Kudos to Netflix. That's the first thing I want to say. Like the idea of going around and buying up cool short stories and making something out of them and hopefully paying the writers and promoting their work. Overall, uh, quality aside, I mean, quality is good. We'll get to that. But I think this is a really cool idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that it's... It, uh the, there's a win on a number of levels here. I can't believe I used the word win like that, but whatever. The, the, the point is, <laughs> it's like, yuck. These authors, not only are they getting paid, and hopefully they're getting paid very well, but they're also getting a level of exposure to an audience that they might not necessarily get. There's a lot of people out there who aren't going to look around for a good science fiction short story, but might get hooked by one of these shorts, which might lead them to the author. And I love that idea very much. Yeah, even even me, uh, the guy with the science fiction podcast, like some of these, like the, um, uh, is it Beyond the Aquila Rift? Am I naming it correctly? Yes, that's it. I, I think it's Aquila, but like we're talking about a section of space where, where to the best of our knowledge, nobody lives. I think you could pronounce it how you want. <laughs> right. That was a really cool one. It's kind of a classic uh, horror twist story. I won't spoil it for you folks, but, um, you know... It, that was really cool. And now, based on the sort of overall mood of that story, I want to read more about that person because it reminded me of Lovecraft. It was like someone meshed together uh, some old school Lovecraft and 
just some straight up like Richard Morgan type pulp. And I'm here for that. It was great, you know? Well, that author was Alistair Reynolds. And there's another, like, if if you want to get an idea of his, stri- uh, what would you call it, his range, he also did a story on here called Zima Blue, which, I'll be honest, I don't think it was as good as this one, but it's a completely different variety of story. It's a lot about... Uh, uh, well, it's it's about robotics and the future and the nature of self and that sort of thing. Like, there's no horror in it at all. And I like the idea that they can jump around like that. I mean, that that's, well, I've, I mean, obviously, range is what makes a good author. But the, the idea that you can see it here, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I actually only watched four of these so far. I'm eventually going to get through all of them. So I, I was procrastinating a bit, and I feel silly now because I did enjoy these a lot. I have this, this will emerge if you listen to keep listening to this podcast, folks. Uh, I have a problem with TV shows, especially Netflix shows, to be frank. Now, Netflix did a great job here. If any Netflix exec- execs hear this, do more of this and less of like the other stuff you guys are doing because uh, what I, my problem with TV shows is in this era of binge watching and streaming platforms and also of everyone wanting to ape the conventions of what we call at Prestige TV. When I hear about a new show people like, I get this feeling of exhaustion immediately where I'm just like, oh, so you're telling me that I need to sit down and in short order watch 12 episodes of this thing. I know it's going to be moody and pretentious probably beyond what it needs to be. (laughs) It's not going to (laughs) be, right? Like it's going to have all these dark brooding shots that are like riffing on Breaking Bad and True Detective season one, but are not nearly as interesting. It's going to have, we all know what I, I think we all know what I mean at this point. And I just get tired thinking about it. Now, of course, this is not that. This, these are discrete shorts. They are they vary widely in tone, as Pete was talking about. Uh, in a lot of them, the animation style is essentially um, like top quality video game animation. Uh, in some of them, the tone is much different. Like the one of the Scalzi ones, the the day the yogurt took over, is very comical and cartoonish animation. Um, but yeah, I mean, gosh, please streaming platforms do more cool stuff like this, like more eclecticism more playing around, more paying good writers to write as opposed to algorithmic storytelling. Right. Absolutely agree. You know, one of the things I want to talk about here, because, uh, well, actually, I'm going to start with a question for you, because it's something I've been wondering about since we've started this project, which is occasionally I have said, hey, you know what we should do? Uh, Connor, like every time we do an episode, you have to read a 600 page book about uh, like invading moons or viruses or something. And maybe you'll like it. Maybe you won't. And if it sucks, you're stuck with it. So why don't we do a collection of short stories and you make a choking noise. So like, like what, (laughs) what's the deal with short stories? I I know they aren't your favorite thing, but can we talk about why? I think, you know, it's something that I'm going to keep thinking about. I was just considering it as I was watching these and I was like, well, you take an anti-short story stance, Connor, and you love these. So what's wrong with you? What's going on? And I think one of the things that emerged in that thought process is I okay. Can I go deep here, Pete? This might take a this might take a second. <laughs> okay, yeah, do it, man. All right. So as you as you guys may know, uh, I've been working on a novel. It's been my major project the last few years, and getting to the point where we're trying to sell it and I'm fortunate enough to have an agent and all that stuff that you may have heard me talk about previously. 
And so the last three years, really, really for my whole adult life, such as it is, but for the last three years especially, I've been focused on becoming a novelist. Not a writer in a general sense, but a novelist, someone who knows how to write novels and has written them. <laughs> and I say that because if you come from the literary fiction world, as I sort of do, uh, the, the predominant mode of training for fiction writers is, of course, short stories. And why is that? Well, obviously they're shorter, so if you just want to practice and get a lot done, um, they're a lot easier than novels in that regard. But also because of the rise of MFA programs, which sort of institutionalize the practice of fiction writing. And it's much easier for everyone involved in those programs, whether it's your thesis advisor or your classmates in the workshop, uh, to deal with your work if it's in the form of a short story. So it becomes, and I guess this is where my bias enters, the short story has become this artifact of institutional expedience. It has become a commoditized industrial product of the MFA industry. Uh, this doesn't mean that there aren't good short stories, that the short stories that I've loved. It means, though, that I've, I always saw, not always, but recently at least, I saw becoming a novelist as something that was sort of opposed to the practice of the short story. And by the way, I know a lot of uh, people who are accomplished in both forms, who have published books of short stories, discrete short stories, and novels, who agree that there are very different forms and that the novel is not just an extended short story and the things you have to understand and think about to do them are actually wildly different. Uh, that novels are not glued together collections of short stories, that they are not just ex expanded short stories. And in fact, that trying to do that to make a novel, these are some of the most basic mistakes that even very good writers make. You can see it all, you see it all over the place. In the MFA era, so many literary novels are either a gratuitously expanded short story or they are awkwardly glued together short stories as opposed to a novel with its own integrity, structural integrity. Uh, so that's my yarn, uh, and I think that I've swung too far f towards being anti-short story. And in fact, I think Love, Death, and Robots, in all of its charming, cool, witty glory, will probably push me back towards short stories. So, Pete, I'm here to declare that we definitely should do some short stories, although I'm thinking that maybe right. we start with some Lovecraft. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I... I have this is this is a very interesting place for us, us to end up because I'd like to do a quick discussion of the relationship to the of the short story to science fiction and its importance because we're coming at this from very different places once again. So yeah, uh, let let it rip. All right, so uh, a term we have used to distraction is pulp, and the origin of the term pulp. Uh, well, pulp is poor, is bad paper. Like when they used to make paper, they would just grab the nicest wood they could and they shred it up and they do what they do to make paper out of it. And well, you start running out of the good wood. And so pulp is low quality wood or, you know, uh, skunk wood, whatever you can find that turned it into paper. And the the discovery of how to do that in quantity and effectively basically kickstarted the genre fiction industry. Like, I, I don't know exactly when they figured out how to do it, but it really took off at around 1895 or so. Like, that's when we went from having, like, no genre trade magazines to all genre trade magazines. And it made careers. People like like Jack London or, uh, hell, even Mark Twain. Like, these guys were able to make a living by making short crisp to the point stories and they get bundled together with a bunch of other authors and put out in a monthly magazine 
And these monthly magazines were a big freaking deal from about 1895 to 1930. And like at their peak, which was right around 1930, you'd put your article in a magazine and you'd have at least a million people reading it if it was one of the top end magazines. (laughs) Yeah, those like imagine having a million people listening to this, right? So uh, if the good Lord's willing and the creeks don't rise, folks, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I am holding out for that. I'll admit it. Um, I, actually, I want him listening to the Patreon. But anyway, um, <laughs> so um, it, it was to the point where the high end of science fiction was regarded as the short story. The idea is that anybody could take a concept and inflate it up to however many words, the idea of making a clear, effective thought uh, in as few words as possible, that was considered more of an art by that generation of science fiction authors, by a lot of the Golden Age people. When those other groups came along, you know, there were people reacting to the Golden Age, and some of them were like, hey, okay, we'll do larger books. But generally speaking, The people who followed the Golden Age were mentored by the people in the Golden Age. So there have been a couple of generations of writers who have a special relationship to the short story in science fiction. In fact, some of the worst uh, science fiction there is out there are novels, a specific type of novel called The Fix-Up. There's a guy called uh, A.E. Van Vogt. Someday I'm going to do a whole thing on him, but let's just say he is the most influential bad science fiction writer you're ever going to know. Like, if he hadn't been on the scene, we wouldn't have ended up with aliens. We wouldn't have ended up with Star Trek. Like, a lot of his ideas launched this stuff, and he couldn't write for crap. Uh, Well... His short stories were okay, but he developed the idea of the fix-up where he would take two short stories which seemed to be roughly in the the same world, and he would design a middle short story as a bridge, call, like, change one of the characters' names so it was all the same person, and publish it as a book. Well, that is, when you put it that way, that sounds terrible, but here's the the bad news, Pete. A lot of people who are much better at writing prose than him— do the same thing with literary novels. This is something I'm, you, you said all that, and I, it's fascinating. And I'm sitting here and I'm being like, so he's famous for being terrible, but in the literary fiction world, people do that shit all the time because they don't know how to write a good novel. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, you know, as long as I'm talking about him, can I, can I give you like my moment of deep cringe with him? He was one of the top three. Like he was Heinlein level, top of his class in the golden age. And all, there, there was no history of, of literary criticism in science fiction. If people wrote in to write about a novel, they're like, yay, it's great, we want more aliens, that's awesome. But there was this snot-nosed kid named Damon Knight uh, who wrote in a letter to, uh, to one of these magazines and says, look, A.E. Van Vogt sucks because of A, B, C, D, E, and F, and just, like, tore him apart, and they published it. And A.E. Van Vogt read it, agreed and rewrote his book. It was like this weird spirit-crushing moment. And then Damon Knight ended up be- becoming one of the, the grandmasters of science fiction. Well, so so sounds like Van Vogt, uh, despite being a bad writer, was at least not arrogant. He was receptive. I, 
And I honestly, I feel cruel calling him a bad writer because, like, he was so influential. He had to have something going on. I just have to say when I've read his books, I've tended to But this is... That's probably the... Yeah, that's that's so important to to the concept of genre fiction in, in, in a sense, right? Because it is possible, it turns out, to have a profoundly powerful imagination and a really good sense of how to take ideas and extrapolate them into allegories and all the, the things that we keep talking about regarding science fiction. It's possible to be very good at that and to not be an interesting storyteller, to not be good at creating characters, to not be a good writer in general. It is th- those, those two things can certainly coexist. Uh, and of course, sure. you know, the history of science fiction or any genre fiction is that they are allowed to coexist uh, in a way that is, you know, that the, that the literary fiction world looks down upon, right? But it's only, the point that you're getting at is it's only through the interplay of all that being allowed to mix together and people that have interesting ideas but are not good writers being allowed to put them into book form or short story form, as you just said. That's that's how we, that has birthed so many great things, Um and you know, not that I, I feel like that's a, that's kind of a sappy way to to put an ending on that. But that's like that's you know, I, this is this is. I think that the the moment at which my opinions about these things started to morph is the moment that this podcast really, uh, sort of became, you know, a possibility. Um, but I I kind of what's right. that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry. I said right on. I. No, no, I just, it's one of the nice things about this is that I hate to go meta here, but it's a dialogue. Like on the one level, working with you and talking with you, I learn more about like what literature is in a larger sense because I'm incredibly over-specialized. And like hearing that that your opinions are also being uh, influenced or possibly infected, I, I mean, I think that's a, that's a great bonus. I mean, I, I like that interplay very much. Folks, you're getting some real tearjerker moments here. Uh, <laughs> have you ever seen Life Aquatic? There's a great moment uh, where uh, Bill Murray yells at Willem Dafoe because Bill Murray and um, Owen Wilson were having this father-son moment and, and Willem Dafoe wasn't filming it. And Bill Murray's like, that was a goddamn tearjerker, man. How did you not get that? Anyway, uh, <laughs> guys, I'm sorry. I, I'm really, really tired, sleep-deprived, and I have a beer, and so forgive me for rambling a little bit. Um, I want to circle back though to, uh, these short, these sci-fi shorts. Um, you watched all of them and I did, I see the sense you may have watched many of them more than once. And, uh, also true. Yeah. I've watched four. I watched secret war. I watched beyond a killer rift. I watched the day the yogurt took over and I watched lucky 13 and all of them were great. I would say the least interesting, no offense to Scalzi was the yogurt one, but it's just, it's really just a fun, very short one. Uh, I have a theory based on no evidence, which is they went to Scalzi to get lighter content. Like most of these short stories are rich and dark and clever in ways that are just a little bloody. And then the Scalzi stories that they've injected in are goofy, like goofy and fun. Yeah. And they use like sort of kids cartoon animation as opposed to the serious gritty video game animation of some of the other ones. And you, you, I want to touch on what you said. So you brought pulp up already and you talked about yes. the actual, the history of the board pulp. And you talked about how Scalzi is here to leaven this with comedy. These are not only dark and gritty and violent. They certainly are. Uh, make no mistake. The ones I've watched are, there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of gore. Um, 
There's a lot of nudity. A lot of nudity. Bear a lot of sexuality. If you want your kids to watch this, I would, be ready with a blanket. Right. I would use words like gratuitous at times. And one thing oh, we, yeah. we always... Pl- oh, yeah. Lots of, lots of gratuitous sexuality. I actually used the term when I was texting with Pete. I said, sex position, which if you're a Game of Thrones... If you're in the Game of Thrones discourse, um, that term, I think, maybe may have been coined about Game of Thrones, actually, which is just that you have characters doing essentially exposition... But there's nudity, which just, you know, makes you pay close attention to the exposition or maybe maybe makes you pay less attention to the exposition, actually. But like that's that's a term. That's a thing that Game of Thrones has been criticized for. And I think when the term sex position is used about uh, visual media, it's often used in a derogatory manner. But I want to swing back a little bit the other way here and say, I think that I want to defend pulp a little bit. I, I think that we we've culturally put too much of a burden at times on pop culture products uh to you don't always have to thread the needle of like not doing fan service or not titillating people or like it can be okay to give people what they want even even beyond what's needed uh pulp can be okay i i think that that's an that that shouldn't be as 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 profound of a statement it's not a very profound statement but i feel like in 2019 we spend so much time talking about like what's cancelable, what should be canceled, what are we going to save from cancellation? And I'm just like, man, you have a 17 minute short and you want to have a little bit more nudity than it really needs to tell the story. Is it really worth my energy to do anything other than be like, Hey, well, that's kind of (laughs) hot. I mean, come on, you know? Well, I think I well, I agree a hundred percent with what you said. Let's start there. But I also think that when people do uh, engage with pulp on a wary level, or even attempt to cancel, part of that is coming from a good place because there's a lot of cultural weight at, behind some really bad ideas out there. Oh, no so, doubt, no doubt. So, like, there's a lot of nudity in this. Uh, there's not a lot of rape. I don't think there's any rape. But yeah. historically. I mean, ahead, sorry. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm not just saying that just to, like, make this weird. Like, if you read a lot of historical science fiction, there's a lot of rape. Yeah. And yeah. that's, you know, so, like, I think I think it's really possible to take pulp and, like, suck all the fun out of it and just make it, like, you know, the the perfect spot where boring and crappy meet. Well, I think you touched on something that I want to go deeper on, which is saying like the difference between, you know, somewhat uh, gratuitous sexuality versus exploitative to the point of offensive things like sexual assault. Yes. Uh, and what, how do we draw the line? And I think that part of it is, is just a simple matter of self-awareness and being like, am I, do, do, are you convinced when you're watching this or reading this, whatever the media may be, are you convinced that the author has some kind of handle on their flaws and their pathologies as well as their desires and their good qualities and that they're able, they're, they're in some kind of control of that as opposed to maybe people writing often in the past, you have a lot of men who are repressed and angry, frankly, especially in sci-fi, I'm guessing, like a lot of men who are repressed yeah. and angry and lonely and are not coping very well with it. And it can come out in some upsetting ways. And I think that the the future of pulp has to be like it can you can do pulp, whether it's sexuality or violence. By pulp, I guess I just mean things that are uh, indulgent and over the top in sort of conventional, uh, sort of conventionally familiar ways. That's that's maybe one maybe a little definition. raw. 
raw, you know, it, it's it's usually a statement about quality, but I'm just saying that it's like, and, and these things do impinge upon like the absolute artistic profundity maybe of what you're doing. Uh, but like, but yeah, I just really think that it's like, if you, we talked about, I think uh, last week talked about how male writers now, and I'm aware this is a male writer, you're encouraged to get your horniness under control. And I think that that's the point. It's not that you're not allowed to have sexuality in your writing. It's mm-hmm. that you need to be in control of it. You need to think it through. You need to think about what am I really instantiating here? And then you can't just get defensive when someone pushes back on it. You have to actually, you have to listen and say like, if a woman says that this is needlessly something, yeah, I mean, that's, that's all, that's all that's really being asked of writers and it shouldn't be this big dramatic thing. It, you know, I think that it's just a good set of goals to have as a writer and as a person. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, it has to come with a little bit of humility. Um, I think there is a, uh, there's a, and like I could be talking out of my hat right now, so feel free to correct me, but I think there's a generational gap between, say, uh, Generation X and most of our listeners where um, I, I would say that there were a lot of things that were considered socially acceptable when I was growing up and actually part of the common discourse that are absolutely unacceptable now unacceptable in speech, unacceptable in writing. And let me say, like most of the things I'm thinking about, I'm very glad they're not acceptable anymore. But the the fact is, like the the world changes and the written word doesn't always catch up with you. And you've gotta you gotta listen. You know? It's like, uh am I making sense? I totally keep going. Okay. Well, I, the the point I'm making is like when you're when you're reading this sort of thing, if if you enjoy a story and then later people are like, "Well, no, that is uh that's socially unacceptable. That's homophobic. That's that's racist. Whatever it is, it is very easy just to shut down and shoot the messenger. And um it's um, for for people who are relatively young, it might not have happened to you yet. Like you might not have like cemented your enjoyment of a particular piece of media and then have the world change on you. But it's gonna happen to you. That's a really great point, actually. That like the the cancelers will come for you too. You're gonna wake up one day and there's gonna be some teens canceling you. <laughs> yes, and I mean, I it's a test of who you are, what you do then. And I like to think that I've mostly succeeded, but I've certainly failed. I think, Pete, you do a phenomenal job in so many ways uh, and should be commended for it. Um, but I, 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 um, that was all, that was all really interesting. And gosh, there's so much to unpack here. I think, though, that like, I want to go a little bit farther. What I was saying in part is defending pulp. Yes. Which is that just to unpack, I'm thinking more and more about these, like these shorts, uh, or just stuff that I've seen recently in general. And I think that something unfortunate has happened to me and to probably a lot of us, uh, which is that when there's like overt sexuality being thrust on my, in my face on the screen, I mm-hmm. immediately am trying to resist. This might just be a, a Puritan American thing partly to it. I'm immediately trying to resist like having the reaction like, oh, that's hot or whatever. Like even though, even though it may be intended that to be that way. And 
the more I think about this, and I have to be careful how I say this because I'm, I'm not just saying like be horny all the time, but it's like <laughs> it, it is. It, I just want to say like stuff That's like that. That's our takeaway, folks. <laughs> it's but like it's totally okay. It's totally okay for art to be straightforwardly erotic, to not be doing sure. like a to not be doing some kind of profound commentary on eros or relations between people or anything else. It can like art. Good art can be erotic, for instance, and that can just it can literally just turn you on and. I think it would be a real shame if we get so reflexive and so analytic and so critical in certain in certain particular ways that we kind of forget that. And like I, I think that would be a shame. And I think that's this is where we have to continue to be guided by pulp a little bit. Um, well, fundamentally, like we're reading this stuff and we're doing it like to enjoy it. Like nobody is going to go out and and check out these like short story uh, animated clips to grow as a person. And if you are, reevaluate your life choices. Like the whole point <laughs> of this is it's supposed to be fun. And so I think you're absolutely right. It's like there's a place and a time for you to look and say, well, should I, should I examine this and grapple with it on a deeper level? Or am I going to watch some shooting and some boobs? Like that's okay too. It has to be okay because it's who we are on some level. It, it has to be okay, and I think like this is, gosh, this is going to be, we've opened up this whole interesting thread that I'm sure is going to run through our podcast of just being like, if we're saying like pulp can be okay, and level some kind, certain kinds of gratuity within pulp can be okay, and I, I, do, th- I do believe that's correct. I think that is, that is very important to say. Um, it's, it's just, we're going to have to keep working on this because it's so hard to find the vocabulary even to talk about this and say like, because as soon as you said this is entertainment, I agree. But I also, when people say that, I always think about like Gamergate <laughs> and how they were like, don't be, don't do politics in my video games. And I, of course, like, that's stupid, right? Like Pete and I, as you know, if you listen to our podcast, we do politics all over everything all the time. This is probably our least political podcast by far in a conventional sense. We haven't talked about an empire, for instance, which we bring up every time, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, well, in our last episode we sort of had a bit at the end where we were talking about uh science fiction becoming cool or science fiction becoming isolated and this is a perfect tie-in point for what i wanted to talk about if that's all right with you let her rip all right so um one of the things that people do to develop an identity especially if you're an unpopular person is that you find something obscure that gives you a sense of secret brotherhood and you master it. That might be Dungeons and Dragons. That might be video games. That might be, I don't know, collecting pogs. I don't know. Like, it, it's, a, it's a thing that you do that other people don't do, that you become, like, Warhammer is a classic example of this. But what is happening these days to a lot of these things is that they are being swallowed and being made more accessible by pop culture. Like, it is a lot easier to engage with video games now than it was 20 years ago. And is this good? I would say yes. I think it's fantastic. It's so democratizing, if that's a word. It it brings varied voices to these things. It can be bad for some people. If you wrap your identity around something obscure, and then you wake up one day, and everybody you know is talking about it, it feels like that thing has been ripped from you. And when that happens... 
man, you go nuts. And so when I say that I'm a little worried about science fiction becoming uh, like part of the dominant mass culture, I'm not saying this because I'm afraid you're going to take my clubhouse away. I'm afraid of it because of Gamergate. I'm afraid of it of what my fellow nerds do when you take their clubhouse away. Because people get incredibly toxic when they are threatened on that level. And I think it's going to happen here. Well, that's interesting. That's very interesting. There's a ton to unpack there. And I think it's an important point. And of course, it must be said, I mean, I'm not, you're probably more of a well-versed than this than I am, but like, that, didn't this kind of already happen with the last couple of years with the sad puppies at the Hugo and Nebula Awards and stuff? Yes, that is exactly what's happening there. And that's, you know, what's very interesting is if you look at this roster of short story people, uh, there's, there's some strong anti-puppy voices here, like John Scalzi. And then Marco Clues, uh, like I'd have to dig up the details, but Marco Clues, who did two of these stories, one you you watched, Lucky 13, he ended up stepping away from the awards ceremony because the sad puppy sponsored him. And he was like, kiss my ass. I'm not going to be part of your little weirdness. Ah, okay. Are there any writers here who are a little bit more reactionary, at least, or who aren't quite exactly woke? Or is this purely an anti-puppy uh, contingent? I okay I would say of the th people here the least woke and I say this with caution is probably Peter Hamilton but Peter Hamilton to the best of my knowledge is not like a rabid nut Peter Hamilton is just more right wing than I am and I mean you know like science fiction is an open discourse you can be more right wing than me he is not he wasn't trying to stack the deck he wasn't involved in any of that stuff he just writes books about how libertarians are the good guys and commies are the bad guys and like fair enough that's a strain in science fiction <laughs> all right i mean yeah fair enough i ah man there's just god we're just all we're doing here is just ranging into these new topics that there's so much to unpack with it's great it's great i have so many thoughts about what you just said, and I may have to save some of them. Honestly, not I. I, I do want to talk a little bit more about these shorts because I feel like we haven't quite done them justice. Um, although, well, and honest, we're mirroring the shorts right now. We're presenting like small chunks of ideas and dropping them and moving on, just like a short story does. Yeah, there's actually this. There's a well-established concept <laughs> in uh, kind of high academic theory uh, of how you you will start to mimic the patterns of the thing you're critiquing when you do theoretical critique of it. We did that with uh, Haldeman when we were like ducking in and out and talking about how perspectives changed over time. We're doing that now with the shorts. So I forget, I forget he wrote about this first. But anyway, <laughs> we're doing that, folks. Well, we're, yeah, go ahead. Let's do some f simple fan service. Like just on the level of pure enjoyment, what was the moment in one of these that you enjoyed the most? Ooh, boy, there's so many. Okay, in the, just just in the four that I saw, mm -hmm. there are many possible candidates. I think probably beyond the Killer Rift, which I'm going to spoiler, spoiler a little bit, folks. Uh, go watch it if you don't want to be spoiled on this. Um, it's great. But uh, let's just say that <laughs> there's some sort of really gross cosmic Lovecraftian horror that happens here. Um, and right before the reveal, I, I found myself really emotionally affected, whether it was whatever combination of fatigue 
or whatever. But I found myself very much affected by the part where the guy, the protagonist, has realized very much that, that something is very off with the supposed good circumstance he's stumbled into where he's getting laid and stuff. Uh, and he's demanding to see the truth. And the entity that is going to reveal the truth to him is like, ah, like very, like, like very hurt by this. And it's like, well, if you insist, but like, it's convincingly that she's very hurt. It's like, if you insist, I'll do it for you. And then the reveal is horrifying, but (laughs) something, I don't know, something about that, that something sci-fi specific about the forlornness there of like, you know, the reveal is going to be this cosmic mind bender, fantastical thing. And all, you also know it's going to be awful, but there's something also like this is how sci-fi uses those vast, distant themes and elements to make something something very human, which is this sense of, yes, I'm going to tell you the truth because I care for you and you're going to absolutely hate the truth. And that, I don't know, that got me. Yeah. It's a good use of the sci-fi tools to get me there. You know, the funny thing is like my favorite moment is trivial and silly and just in a completely different direction. And it's in one of my least favorite ones on here. Uh, when the yogurt took over by John Scalzi, uh, there's just a little moment where people like it's about a super intelligent yogurt that takes over the world. Okay. And there's some protesters in the middle of it, and one of them is holding up a sign that says lactose intolerant. And I think that is the funniest thing. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, question. Was that, a, was that a short story he published? Uh, I had the feel of a original yeah. short Oh, it was? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it yeah, I couldn't tell you where or anything, but. I mean, well, I guess, I guess if I Googled, but suddenly that feels like cheating. So I keep our audience can read it. I've compared Scalzi before to Bill Watterson of Calvin and Hobbes. They're both mustachioed dad core guys from Ohio. Uh, and that was a, that, that whole story, the yogurt taking over was a very like Calvin is daydreaming kind of story. Yes. Uh, a sentient food taking over the world. And so I really appreciated that too. Um, gosh, these, these shorts, I think the thing that is, that is make, that is, I find so interesting is a lot of them are about 15 minutes long, if that. And they're hitting those emotional notes for me. I mean, Lucky 13, the ship, uh, spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> the ship the ship blowing itself up to save that woman. Like, oh, it got me. I don't know. These have been hitting me for I, some reason. I did too. And like Marco Clues, he's the, he's the military science fiction guy. And he does that so well. Like, I don't know Boo about military science fiction. Well, I, I, I tell a lie. I know a lot about military science fiction, but I don't know a lot about the military. But Marco Clues convinces me every time on a level that, say, Scalzi does not. Yeah, that was a really, I thought, a very convincing military story. Um, I just want to urge everyone, these are on Netflix. Uh, they're very short. You can watch one in just a few minutes. Uh, yeah. they're phenomenal. I, the ones I've seen at least are definitely check these out. Uh, I'm giving this a glowing review. I think to perhaps do a nice juxtaposition with Pete's discourse about nerd culture, I actually have to go, uh, watch some basketball now, but, um, <laughs> uh, this 
has been great, everyone. And we'll probably revisit Love, Death, and Robots if they do more of these. So go watch it. Uh, one thing before we go. Um, I, I sincerely believe that there's an alternate timeline somewhere where you and I are doing a basketball podcast where you're introducing me to that. Just the complete inverse of this. Hey, uh, maybe next basketball season. You never know what might happen. So that's our that's our that's our uh, <laughs> our teaser for now. Uh, <laughs> thanks, everyone. <laughs>